Welcome to the teachings of Pastor Mike Yost of the Springs Calvary Chapel in Habern, Idaho. Please join us as we study the Word of God. This morning, we continue in the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 20. We made it to verse 19 last week, where Jesus' authority is being challenged. Jesus is being questioned by the priest. What gives you the authority to come in here and overturn the money changers table? What gives you the authority to come in here and speak as though you know God? What gives you that right? Jesus told him, well, let me ask you a question, and if you answer it, I'll answer you. Uh, John the Baptist, by whose authority did that come? And they reason amongst themselves, well, if we say uh, of, uh, of men, uh, well, then we should probably do what he says. Well, if you say from heaven, then, wow, that kind of disregards, I don't know. We're not going to answer you at all. We don't know what John the Baptist's authority was. Seriously? <laughs> you got a whole Bible. It's been prophesying, predicting, this is exactly what's going to happen, exactly when it's going to happen to the day, and you don't know, and you're the teachers, leaders of the nation of Israel, really? He says, let me tell you a parable. There was this vineyard owner, and he was going away, so he lent out his vineyard to vine dressers, right? And, we, and, and, and I'm not trying to do last week all over again, but just to give us a running start into what's going on here, and the, these vine dressers, when it came time to take some of the profits from the field and send them on up to the vine vineyard owner, uh, they didn't. They kept it from themselves. The messengers they sent, which is a picture of the prophets, they beat up and sent away, you know, the, the um, Jeremiah's or uh, the Ezekiel's, all the people who've been coming and, and prophesying to the nation of Israel. Then the vine owner sends his son, and they say, ah, the son, if we kill him, then we can inherit all this. This is all going to be ours. And to be certain, they understood when Jesus used this parable of a vineyard, he was talking about Israel. Israel throughout the Scriptures is always pictured as God's vineyard. So they knew God was, Jesus was talking to them. They were the vine dressers, but they were the ones who had been mistreating God's messengers and His Son. And as He, as he speaks this to them, he says, so they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him, speaking of the son. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will, and this is Jesus' answer. He answers the question, what are they going to do? And he tells them what they're going to do. He will destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not. And then he looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. They had rejected Jesus Christ, the rock, the rock that a church would be built upon, the chief cornerstone. And he says, anyone who falls on that stone will be broken, just like you and I have to come to Jesus Christ and be broken. But whoever that rock falls on will be crushed and turned to power. And he, he says in this parable, he's going to give it to another. And, and in this, we see a picture of the authority the challenge that they've challenged Jesus. By what authority do you do these things? He goes, well, I can tell you this much. It's not yours. Your authority, it's gone. 
It's disappeared. It's evaporated. You have no authority here is really what he's saying to them. And they understood what he was saying to them. And they became highly offended. It says in verse 19, And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. They knew he was talking about them. It's interesting, in the Gospel of John, we read in the week preceding this, in John chapter 11, in verse 45, this is now with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. In verse 45, then many of the Jews who had come to Mary had see, and had seen him, the things that Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away and told the Pharisees uh, these things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now, this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for that nation only, but also he would gather together in one, the children of God, who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. It's interesting. And then go to chapter 12 in John verse 1. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he raised from the dead... And I'm going to jump to verse 9 to tie this all together. Now, a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they also might see Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Caiaphas, the high priest, not because he was saying it rightly, but the Holy Spirit, kind of just like Balaam's donkey, just spoke through the high priest and said, it's more expedient than one man should die than we lose the whole nation and our place here. And what he's saying is, and they put a, a contract, a hit on Jesus. We need to take him out so that we can keep all this together. This is their, quote, authority and their plot. And it says, now this very hour, okay, this is it. You told this parable in the temple in front of all these people. You have embarrassed us to no end. This right now, we're going to kill you right here, right now, this very hour. It says verse 20 now, Luke twenty twenty. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. Okay? So they're questioning Jesus' authority. They can't answer by what authority John the Baptist comes. They have no authority themselves, but they are trying to figure out some kind of way they can give him to the Roman government because they do have some authority. Right? And this, this is kind of fun to me. It's in Luke chapter 20, verse 20. Now, God didn't put these verses in here. Man did. It just helps us get around. But when I look at Luke 20, 20, 
When I say 2020, what comes to your mind? Vision, right? That's one of the measures, the marks that we measure vision by. 2020 vision isn't perfect vision. It's just normal vision, okay? What the average person can see at 20 feet, you can see at 20 feet, okay? If you are, if it, like a child can often have 2015 vision, which is to say what they can see at 20 feet, you have to be 15 feet away. They have better clarity, visual acuity at a farther distance. But in some cases, uh, we can become uh, <laughs> where we can't see clearly, right? In this case, I would say this chief priests and the Pharisees are myopic, which is to say nearsighted, okay? Uh, Short-sighted. They're not seeing the future, they're not seeing Messiah, they're not seeing God's plan, they're not seeing the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the house, or sin of the world is in the house at Passover, and by all means, we should be celebrating like <laughs> nobody's business, but all they can see is themselves. They're so self-centered, our position in the government, our position of power, and they're really missing out on the big picture here. Verse 21, then they asked him saying, teacher, so they, they use this flattering term, right? Trying to, trying to win him. Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. Both of these are absolutely true statements. It just shows you that the devil can tell things that are true. But that's usually what he does to butter you up, to get you ready, to take you out, right? And this is flattery, and this is what they're trying to do. Oh, teacher, rabbi, rabbi, they despise him. They're plotting to kill him. They're trying to get people to pretend they're righteous so they can take him out right now. They're wicked. They're evil. But that's not what their words are. Their words absolutely do not, do not match their motives. And you so, show no personal favoritism. So they're setting them up. They're setting the trap. We're going to catch him in this trap that he has to teach rightly. So whatever you say has to be true and not show personal favoritism. Let's see how they set this up then. Verse 22, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not. But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, why do you test me? Okay, just uh, Christianity theology 101. God knows what you're thinking. God knows your heart. You're not fooling him, right? If you're, if you're here they are talking straight to Jesus and thinking they're going to catch him. And he's like, man, I know what you're doing here. Why are you doing this? Why is it that you're challenging me? Why is it you're defying me? Why is it you're rebelling against me, against my father, against my witness? Why are you doing this to me and to yourselves, really? And so it comes down to this question, is it lawful for us to pay taxes, okay, to Caesar, who is the emperor of the Roman Empire, who is the occupying force in Israel at this time. Now, just a little bit of background on that question that might help you see it a little more clearly, maybe not as short-sighted as these guys are. But Rome 
in trying to put down rebellions in Israel, took away their right to self-government in 6 AD. And since 6 AD, Israel had simply operated as a pawn of Rome. Rome would appoint a governor. The governor, in this case at this time, Pontius Pilate, was the one who made the final call as to everything that went on. And, and they had lost their right to prosecute capital crimes, which is to say they could not put anybody to death for crimes that they would consider blasphemous, deserving of stoning. According to the Bible, they didn't have the right to do any of that anymore. Funny side note to that. In um, uh, Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, Jacob is giving a blessing to Judah. And he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. Shiloh is a, is a name which refers to the Messiah. Everybody understood this. Until the deliverer of Israel, Messiah comes to Israel, that scepter, the right to rule, to self-govern, it'll not go away. Judah will maintain that right until Messiah comes. And then in 6 AD, Rome took away the scepter the power. Kind of funny thing. At that time or shortly after that, there's documents you can read of rabbis in the day declaring, Oy vey, what has become of us? The scepter has departed, but Shiloh has not come. The scriptures are broken. And yet we know that in 6 AD, Messiah had come to a manger, to a couple, in Bethlehem. And in fact, he was there. But again, they're short-sighted, myopic. They can't see. And so this is the circumstances they find themselves in. Not only did they lose the right to capital punishment, but they had to pay taxes. Now they had to render unto Caesar taxes. And those taxes would go to the coffers in Rome. And Rome could do whatever they wanted with their money. Some of this may be bothering some of you a little bit just in terms of taxes, you know. Used to, used to be April 15th. Have we moved that day, tax day? You notice we don't have fireworks. We don't have picnics. We don't have barbecues. We don't celebrate April 15th, do we? Often most people's least favorite day in all that goes on. And so kind of interesting. Who should we pay our taxes to? There's a, something fun in uh, Luke's gospel back in chapter 6 at verse 15. We get a list of the uh, apostles, the 12, who he prayed all night. And then he, he gathered everybody together and said, these are my apostles. These are my official emissaries, my ambassadors. I placed my authority in them. And these 12, right? We, we know very much about the apostles. One you don't know a lot about, but his name is Simon, the Canaanite. Okay, he was from Cana, where they did the uh, wedding feast, and Jesus turned the water into wine. Well, Simon the Canaanite, you read in uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 615, he's also known as Simon called the Zealot. Now, a zealot is somebody who is zealous, or has zeal, is zealous for God. And it was actually, in Jesus' day, a political party, like the Republicans, the Democrats, and the zealots. 
And, and they had so much zeal that, A, they would not pay taxes. They would chafe at pay, paying taxes. And it was even spoken of that some of the really extreme zealots were terrorists, not above political assassinations against Rome. This is how far they had taken their Jewish nationalism and pushed it to the point where they would kill for the cause of Israel. Not hard to imagine. That's what the chief priests and Pharisees are plotting to do, to kill for the cause of Israel. And so here's this Simon the Canaanite, the zealot. And can you imagine with the uh, apostles as they're walking along the roads there in Galilee or now here at the temple? How did that work between Simon the zealot and Matthew Levi? the tax collector. Did they have to like bunk up together? What would that be like? It, it just, this is what the love of God can do. Break down all the barriers. Just, just break us down to the least common denominator. I'm a sinner. You're my savior. Okay? And, and, and this is something that's going on in this, but it's really a, a kind of an interesting quagmire that they're in here. What are we going to do paying these taxes? And I'm sure Simon's somewhere in the crowd. We're not going to pay him. <laughs> he's, you know, he's got, he voted. He voted. He's got his little thing. I don't have, do I have it here? No, it's on the outside of my other thing. I always carry around my little ticket. I voted, right? The little thing they give you when you vote. I just want everybody to know I vote. You vote. You ought to vote. As a biblical citizen, we should just stand up for what God's principles are. You know, there's opportunities to voice our opinion. But at any rate, he perceived their craftiness, verse 23, and said to them, why do you test me? He said to them, show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? And they answered them, and they said, Caesar's. Now here I've got I collect all kinds of little fun things. This, you, can, you may not be able to see this from there. You, you know, maybe you're myopic. But you can, I'm just teasing, nobody can see this. But these are coins that come from Israel, right? They've been excavated. And this one here, the smaller one, is a, a denarius, okay? Uh, and it's, it's actually got the image of the emperor of Caesar Tiberius on it. And uh, it contains the inscription, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. And then if you flip over on the obverse, the backside, you see a female seated. Most people believe that was Leva, which would be Tiberius's mother. And the inscription on the back says, high priest. And so, who do we pay taxes to? And you've got this, this, this tax that they have to give to Caesar. So, he says, show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? Clearly, it's Tiberius. It's a picture of his face calling him uh, divine, okay? And he said to them, render or give back, therefore, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. <laughs> so, looks like that belongs to Caesar. Doesn't, doesn't have his face on it? I think it belongs to Caesar. He says, give back, which is to state... It was his. It came from him. You can give it back to him. Okay? Um, I have another coin here. You probably can't see this one any better. 
It has a face on it. And on it, it has the inscription, Liberty, in God we trust, e pluribus unum, out of many one. And it's got the, the date and the um, mint stamp and the value. This one is a quarter dollar. This is government money. They, they mint it, they distribute it, and it's to be used for all legal matters for money. Now, I'm treading on really thin lines because I know that S Simon the Zealot lives, and he lives in this church. <laughs> Such were some of us, amen? I, I get all that. But look what he says, and, and, and this is amazing. Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, but that's not where he stops, and to God the things that are God's. Well, this clearly is government tender. But what image do I bear? What image do you bear? We are created in the image of God. And we're supposed to give back to God the things that are God's. His property. I am His property. You are His property. You have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And to that, we owe him our life. So these little trifles like money, you need to, uh, you need to obey the government, submit to governing authorities. I'm going to bring up a couple verses here for you, and we're going to see where this takes us. I know you've heard these verses before used in this context. First one is in chapter 13 of Romans. I'm going to read a little chunk of it. Romans 13, 1, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Claro? Capiche? For the rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. You can, <laughs> that you don't feel guilty. For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs are due, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. And Peter would write in 1 Peter chapter 2, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that 
by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free, yeah, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. And so we are to be subject to the governing authorities, according to the scriptures, and we are to submit to the ordinance of man. And I'd like to bring to bear right now a little commentary that was written a couple hundred years ago. You might know it. You'll recognize it when I start reading. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. A couple years later, they put that into a code or a law. You know it better this way. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. And it goes on. It ends with the um, Bill of Rights. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. And so, yes, we are to obey the governing authorities. We are to submit to the ordinance of men. Do you know who our governing authorities are? Look at your neighbor and say, hi. We the people. That's our government. That's who we submit to. And so I just put that out there for you, that we are called to biblical citizenship to honor God, to honor our brother, to honor the king, to stand for Christ, our king, and to recognize that, yes, there are things in this world that I'm going to work with because God has placed his governing authority here in the United States according to our founding documents in us. We've made these rules. Yet at the same time, also understand that 
We are dual citizens. As we have confessed Jesus Christ as our king, we have become king's kids. And our citizenship is in heaven. And so while we live on this earth, according to the, the, the things of the earth, as an opportunity to bring more people with us to heaven, we need to work within the laws of the land. Much as Cheryl and I, when we were missionaries in the Philippines, I never ceased to be an American citizen. And in fact, because I was a, an American citizen and not a Filipino, my rights were fundamentally, you do whatever we tell you or else. That's, that's what I had, okay? If I got myself in a pickle, I pray the U.S. Embassy might come to my rescue. Who knows? But as a dual citizen... I had to operate within the laws of the land. In seven years in the Philippines, up operating under the laws of the land, we watched revival explode in that nation. Absolutely amazing. Less than 4% of the people in the Philippines when we moved there in 2005 were confessing evangelical Christians. By the time we left, it was 12%. That's a 7% increase in the population. It was crazy. And yet in all of that, I had to honor and respect the laws of the land, which included in that case, in that country, the Roman Catholic Church. Philippines prides themselves on being the largest Roman Catholic nation in the world. They are. There's more Roman Catholics in Philippines than any other nation. And they hold incredible sway over the government. And so what the bishop or the cardinal would say or what the pope in Italy would say, man, it had a lot of clout there. And we had to operate under all of those. And yet that didn't stop the word of God from going forward. That didn't stop the ministry from going forward. And in fact, as we just read, if we will work within the system, we can win a lot of people. And so this is one of the things I encourage us as the Springs to be salt and light. That's why we have our salt and light biblical citizenship group, that we could be effective. We don't want to be a pain in somebody's side. We don't want to be the person that walks, oh, no, Mike's here again. Oy. There goes the council meeting. He's going to get up and rant again. That's, that is not going to bring forth the gospel. Yesterday at the men's uh, breakfast, um, Pastor Will from Jerome, he brought forward something which he called the anti-gospel, which is, I think you'll understand it in a minute as we talk about it, but it's something very prevalent in society right now, in, in America. And it's this idea of, as Christians, going out and espousing uh, godly morality and biblical ethics. And you might say, well, what's wrong with that? Nothing's wrong with that if it comes as an amendment, as an addendum, as an addition to espousing Christ crucified. Because if you are not sharing Jesus who died for our sin and rose in victory, all you're doing is pumping morality and ethics and you should do this and you shouldn't do that and this is right and that's wrong. Nobody's getting the gospel. Nobody's getting saved. 
and all you are is a real pain in the side. It's an anti-gospel. A lot of people feel very good about it because I stood up for what's right. I went and protested. I had my sign. I got a bullhorn. I told people what I thought. Really? So how many of them are at church this morning? Because ultimately, if we're not focusing on the main thing, Christ and Him crucified, we, we, we don't, we don't, we, we're not going to get to where we need to go. Are you with me, team? So here's what he says. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but, and this is the most important part, I think this is funny, especially with the Simon the Zealot crew, how we get so mm, upset about rendering unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And can I confess, I have issues with that. <laughs> it's not easy for me. But the part that should pierce our heart is render unto God the things that are God's. You have a hard time giving that to the government? How do you do with giving yourself to God? You know what? If you'll fix that one, you don't even care about the other ones. You, you follow this? Render, therefore, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. But they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people. And they marveled at his answer and kept silent. By what authority do you do these things? Well, you answer my question and I'll tell you. And each time they challenge him and they fall flat on their face. I truly meant to go a lot further this morning. <laughs> but we're going to stop there. Worship team, come on forward. Keep in mind that we're in Passion Week. The week where millions of Jews have traveled from across the planet to be at the temple, to worship God to pay their dues to God. The required feast, three times a year, every able-bodied man should come to Jerusalem. Passover, Pentecost, and tabernacles. And when you come, you should bring an offering, something to give to God. And they've come from all over the world. Some of them had to carry money because it was a little difficult carrying that lamb all the way from Damascus or whatever then they would try to exchange it. They would get ripped off, but they're coming. They're pilgrims. They're sincere in what they're doing, and there's millions of them. They're crowded in here. Messiah is here. This is the culmination of everything the Scriptures have been talking about. And now we're in this time period that the Bible speaks about in Exodus chapter 12 when it says to offer a lamb. It says on Nisan 10. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, that on the Jewish calendar is um, in the springtime. It's the first day of Passover, Nisan 10. Jesus came in to Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. He came down the Palm Sunday road. He wept for Jerusalem. If only they had known this time that had made for their peace, but they didn't. They were blind. They were short-sighted. They were myopic. 
He has to cleanse the temple. And now here he is, according to Exodus, they're to take that lamb into their household from Nisan 10 to Nisan 14, five days. And while that lamb is with you, you are to inspect that lamb and to make sure it's free of all spots, all wrinkles, all blemishes. Because if you're going to sacrifice that lamb to God, it's got to be a pure lamb, a perfect lamb, a righteous lamb. God doesn't want some, no, use the old crippled lamb, you know, give, get rid of that, give it to God. He wants the best. And here they are. Here's Jesus, the lamb of God. John the Baptist would say, who takes away the sins of the world. And here he is freely moving amongst the people, cleansing the temple, preaching in the temple, teaching in the temple, moving in and out of the community. And here they are cross-examining him, testing him, inspecting him, inspecting the lamb to see if they can catch him in any words. And they're not done. They're trying to find some kind of an excuse by which they can just put him out of their lives and get back to business as usual. We're in the middle of the inspection of the lamb, questioning his authority, his righteousness, his purity, his why, what, what qualifies you to die for me? And Jesus is answering these questions. He just keeps knocking them down, right? And today, really, what did the question come back down to? Render unto God the things that are God's. He hits, he hits it every single time. This morning we shared Passover. Or Passover. <laughs> this morning we shared communion. Passover, right? We all came to the table, welcomed as friends of God, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, made white as snow. We stand in God's presence righteous. Now, I know you don't feel righteous, and I know I don't feel righteous, but you should know that when God looks on you, just as he would look down on that mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, as the high priest would go in and sprinkle it with the blood of the Lamb, instead of looking down on that Ark and seeing the law, he would see the blood of the Lamb. And that's what he sees when he sees you and me. We're covered. We're cleansed. In his eyes, we're his children. And he's given us opportunity now to go into the world and share this beautiful message. So I just pray that as we worship now and we pray and we fellowship with one another and we go find somebody and we just say, I love you and I'm so glad you're here. This would not be the same place without you. You add so much to my life by being here. Some of us are Simon the Zealots and some of us are Levi the tax collectors. And Lord knows there's a Peter or a John sprinkled in here too. But this exactly, look around. This is the church that God has made. Father God, I want to thank you for calling us to be your children, to calling us to this assembly, to this gathering, that here in our life, here in June of 2023, we have opportunity to go into the world and enjoy your presence, your provision, your promises, and your power to see others healed, set free, and adopted. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, just move upon us Direct us, 
and guide us into your perfect will according to your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about the Springs Calvary Chapel, please visit our website at www.thespringscalvarychapel.org. Join us in person at the Springs in Hebron, Idaho, or here on the podcast as we worship together in spirit and in truth.